these words in 2 Samuel chapter 7, verses 12 through 13, are the words that the Lord spoke to King David through the mouth of the prophet Nathan, promising to establish his kingdom and the Lord's temple forever through his offspring. This promise would be fulfilled initially through Solomon, but ultimately through Jesus Christ, the son of Abraham, the son of David, and the son of God. Hear now the Lord's word to David. When your days are fulfilled and you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. He shall build a house for my name, and I will establish the throne of his kingdom forever. Let us go now to John chapter 17. And here we find the prayer of Jesus Christ to the Father. This text is often referred to as the high priestly prayer of Jesus. For here he prays for those whom the Father had given to him from before the foundation of the world. And so here Jesus mediates in prayer for his people to the Father. John 17. When Jesus had spoken these words, he lifted up his eyes to heaven and said, Father, the hour has come. Glorify your Son, that the Son may glorify you, since you have given him authority over all flesh, to give eternal life to all whom you have given him. And this is eternal life, that they know you, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. I glorified you on earth, having accomplished the work that you gave me to do. And now, Father, glorify me in your own presence with the glory that I had with you before the world existed. I have manifested your name to the people whom you gave me out of the world. Yours they were, and you gave them to me, and they have kept your word. Now they know that everything that you have given me is from you. For I have given them the words that you gave me, and they have received them, and have come to know in truth that I come from you, and they have believed that you sent me. I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. All mine are yours, and yours are mine, and I am glorified in them. And I am no longer in the world, but they are in the world, and I am coming to you. Holy Father, keep them in your name, which you have given me, that they may be one, even as we are one. While I was with them, I kept them in your name, which you have given me. I have guarded them, and not one of them has been lost except the son of destruction, that the scriptures might be fulfilled. But now I am coming to you, and these things I speak in the world, that they may have my joy fulfilled in themselves. I have given them your word, and the world has hated them, because they are not of this world, just as I am not of this world. I do not ask that you take them out of the world but that you keep them from the evil one. They are not of the world, just as I am not of the world. Sanctify them in the truth. Your word is truth. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself, that they also may be sanctified in truth. I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word that they may all be one, just as you, Father, are in me and I in you, that they also may be in us, 
so that the world may believe that you have sent me. The glory that you have given me I have given to them, that they may be one even as we are one, I in them and you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me, and loved them even as you loved me. Father, I desire that they also, whom you have given me, may be with me where I am, to see my glory that you have given me, because you loved me before the foundation of the world. O righteous Father, even though the world does not know you, I know you, and these know that you have sent me. I made known to them your name, and I will continue to make it known that the love with which you have loved me may be in them, and I in them. This is now the reading of God's most holy word. May he add his blessing to the preaching of it this morning. I believe this will be the last sermon in this little series on the church considered in terms of God's temple. We've taken eight sermons uh, to consider the doctrine of the church considered in the terms of temple. Uh, I hope you have not grown tired of this theme. I think it is a very important theme. In fact, when, when your pastor decides to devote eight sermons to something and then to go immediately into a 12 or 13 or 15 week study in Sunday school on the doctrine of the church, there's obviously some burden upon his heart. I hope you know that. And there is. I think we need to regain a sound doctrine of the church in our age. You know, there's a lot of talk of revival right now. Um, I don't really like that word revival, to be honest with you, because it's been so misused uh, throughout church history. Oftentimes it's used to describe moments of great enthusiasm that eventually peter out into nothing at all. But I will say, if we, are to, if we are to witness true revival, it's going to be revival that leads to the flourishing of Christ's church. It's going to be church revival, you see. It's going to be revival that leads to the flourishing and, and valuation of Christ's church by Christ's people, for that is what the scriptures so clearly call us to do. We need to understand what the church is, brothers and sisters. We need to highly regard God's church for Christ shed his blood, not for individual people, but for his people in total. He shed his blood to redeem for himself people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. He laid his life down for his church. The scriptures say so in Ephesians chapter 5. And so we had better understand what the church is. We better have a proper conception of it. And we better value it for the scriptures call us to do this very thing. To, to be members of Christ's church. To seek its building up and its flourishing. As you know this series grew out of our study of the book of Exodus. In that study we learned all about the tabernacle that God commanded Israel to make. And we also trace the theme of tabernacle or temple from Genesis 1 through to the end of the book of Revelation. In brief, we discovered that the story of creation, fall, redemption in Christ Jesus and consummation can be told in terms of the establishment of God's eternal and cosmic temple. Wherein God manifests His glory before His people and His people worship, serve and enjoy Him forever and ever. The story of the Bible can be told in the terms of temple. What is God doing? He is establishing His eternal temple where He manifests His glory and where His people worship Him in holiness forever and ever and enjoy His presence. 
The heavens and the earth were designed to be God's eternal temple. The garden temple was lost at the fall when the first man and woman were ejected from it. And so too was the hope of entering into God's eternal temple by way of obedience to the covenant of works or life that God made with Adam in the garden before sin entered the world. That way to eternal life was closed off for Adam had broken that covenant. But God in His mercy promised to provide salvation and redemption through the offspring of Eve. The first utterance of this promise was contained within the curse that was pronounced by the Lord upon the serpent as recorded in Genesis 3.15. It's a curse, but in it is embedded a wonderful promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. So then the people of God from that day forward, from the moment that that curse was pronounced upon the serpent with that promise contained within it, they put their faith in this promise and in the one who in the fullness of time would be born of the woman. Indeed, many would descend from Eve, for she is the mother of all living. But this promise was about the one who would crush the head of the serpent, that is to say, of the devil himself who tempted Eve and through her Adam, so as to become a kind of illegitimate king in this world for a time. That is what happened when man fell into sin. The evil one became a kind of illegitimate king of this world. He was a traitor. He was a rebel. But he had authority given to him because the allegiance of man was transferred to him for a time. But God, by His grace, promised that one would come from Eve, who would strike the evil one with a fatal blow to the head. And this He would do through suffering, notice. In the process of crushing the serpent's head, the serpent would bruise his heel. This is a reference to the Messiah. This is a promise concerning the coming Messiah. As you know, this first promise of the Gospel was like a seed that would grow and grow with the passing of time. The details of God's plan of redemption grew more and more clear through subsequent revelation. More was revealed to Abraham, and much more was revealed to Israel through Moses. And of course, this all culminated in the birth of Jesus of Nazareth. He was born of a virgin, that is to say, of the seed of Eve. He was and is God incarnate. He is the Redeemer who has bruised The serpent's head through his suffering, he is the fulfillment of all of the promises, prophecies, types, and shadows of old. And what did Jesus Christ, the skull-crushing seed of the woman, earn when he accomplished our redemption? What did he earn exactly? He defeated the evil one decisively in that moment. Though the evil one still has power, his head has been bruised. His head has been crushed. A fatal blow has been delivered. But what did Christ earn when He accomplished our redemption? One, He redeemed a people for Himself. These are the ones that Jesus prayed for in John 17. Did you hear it as I read that text? He redeemed a people for Himself. Just as God redeemed a people from Egyptian bondage through Moses, a particular people were led out of that place and into the wilderness and towards the promised land, so too Christ redeemed a people for Himself. As I say, these are the ones that Jesus prayed for in John 17, the passage we read just a moment ago, saying, I have manifested Your name, Father, to the people 
whom you gave me out of the world. That is John 17, 6. And then he says, I am praying for them. I am not praying for the world, but for those whom you have given me, for they are yours. And then he says, I do not ask for these only, but also for those who will believe in me through their word. That is verse 20 of John 17. And a little bit later he says, Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you have given me because you loved me before the foundation of the world. You see, when Jesus the Messiah lived, suffered, died, and rose again, He bruised the serpent's head. And having bruised the serpent's head, He redeemed a people for Himself, people from every tongue, tribe, and nation. These are the ones who were given to Him by the Father in eternity. These are the elect of God. When Christ lived, when He suffered, when He died and rose again, He defeated the evil one and He set captives free. He earned the salvation of all who were given to Him by the Father in eternity. He shed His blood for many for the forgiveness of sins. You may see Matthew 26, 28 to hear that language. We hear it often when we observe the Lord's Supper. He shed His blood for many for the forgiveness of, the sin, of sins. Who were these many? They are those whom the Father gave to Him in eternity. He shed His blood for the elect, in other words. He accomplished redemption for His people. As Paul says, He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son. That is what God has done for us through Christ Jesus. He has delivered us from the domain of darkness and He has transferred us into the kingdom of His beloved Son, Colossians 1.13. He accomplished this salvation by crushing the head of the serpent to overthrow his illegitimate kingdom, to undo his work, and then to enter into glory and to bring many sons and daughters to glory with him. You heard that, that, that request made of Jesus in this high priestly prayer of his. Not only did he pray for those whom the Father had given to him, not only did he pray that they would be kept in this world, but he prayed that these would be brought to glory with Christ to see the glory that Christ has possessed along with the Father from all eternity. This salvation that Christ has earned we know is applied to the elect of God at just the right time through the preaching of the gospel as the Spirit works to make fallen sinners willing and able to repent and believe upon Christ. So the work that Christ accomplished so long ago is applied to us in time when the Spirit of God draws us to faith in Christ through the preaching of the gospel. But there is something else that Christ earned through His obedience and suffering. He did not only redeem a people for Himself, those given to Him by the Father in eternity, He also earned an eternal kingdom. He earned an eternal kingdom when He crushed the head of the serpent. The evil one had become the prince of this world when he rebelled against his maker and seduced the man and woman to transfer their allegiance to him by listening to his voice, by eating the forbidden fruit. But when Christ obeyed the Father, suffered and died in the place of those given to him by the Father, and rose again on the third day, he earned a kingdom. He ascended to the Father, and what did he do when he ascended? He sat down, that is to say, he sat down on this throne which he had earned through his obedience. All authority in heaven and earth 
was in that moment given to him. This is how the Great Commission is introduced. Christ says to his disciples, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. Go therefore. In other words, I have earned for myself a kingdom. I have become Lord Most High. A name above every name has been bestowed upon me because of my obedience to the Father, because of this work that I have accomplished. Through His obedience and suffering, God has highly exalted Him and bestowed on Him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. That is Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Through His obedience and suffering, Christ became Lord of heaven and earth. Christ is King. Notice I did not say Christ will be King, but rather Christ is King. Even now, He has ascended. He has sat down at the right hand of the Father. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to Him. He is ruling and reigning now. He is the Son of David, whose kingdom will have no end. His kingdom is here now. We are not waiting for a future millennium, brothers and sisters. His kingdom is here now. It will be brought to a consummation when Christ returns to make all things new. As Peter says, according to his promise, we are waiting for new heavens and a new earth in which righteousness dwells. We are not waiting for some future millennium that comes short of the new heavens and new earth, Peter says quite clearly, the thing we are waiting for is the new heavens and new earth in which righteousness dwells. Christ's kingdom is here now. He rules and reigns now. His reign is in the present. We await its consummation. This is the story of our redemption in Christ Jesus, brothers and sisters. It is about the establishment of God's eternal kingdom through Christ. Christ is the Son of David, whose kingdom is here now and will have no end. And where is this inaugurated kingdom manifest? Where is it found? I say it is here now, and you look around and you go, it does not seem to be here now. In fact, the evil one seems to be ruling and reigning. The evil one seems to be quite powerful still. As you look around you, that is what you see. But I am saying, no, according to the Word of God... Christ is ruling and reigning now. His kingdom is here, though it is not yet consummated. And I am asking you the question, where is it manifest? Where is this kingdom? Where is this kingdom of Christ's that began at His first coming and will be consummated at His second coming? The answer is this. It is made visible in the church. That is, in the assembling together of those who confess Jesus is Lord. Christ's people are not of this world, as John 17, 16 says. And yet Christ has not called His people out of this world in this present age. Hear the prayer of Jesus in John 17, 15 through 19 again. I do not ask that you take them out of the world, Jesus prays to the Father, but that you keep them from the evil one. In other words, the, the head of the serpent has been bruised. A decisive blow has been delivered. He has been defeated, but he is still active in this world. 
And so here in this present evil age, we are brought into the kingdom of Christ as we confess Him as Lord. And Christ says to the Father in His high priestly prayer, they're going to have to live in the world. The time has not come for the consummation of all things. They're going to have to live in the world. And Father, I'm not praying that you take them out of the world. They need to live in the world. They cannot flee the world. They must live in it. I'm not asking you to take them out of the world, but that you would keep them from the evil one. Keep them in the world. They are not of the world, you see. We are not of the world. We are not citizens of of the kingdom of the the kingdoms of this world only but we are citizens of the kingdom of God we certainly do not belong to the domain of darkness we have been transferred out of that and into the kingdom of of light so we do not belong to the world we are not of the world just as Christ is not of the world i continue to quote john 17 here is the prayer that jesus offers up to the father sanctify them in the truth keep them from the evil one and sanctify them in the truth Your word is truth, Jesus says. As you sent me into the world, so I have sent them into the world. And for their sake I consecrate myself that they may also be sanctified in truth. This prayer of Jesus is for the people that God has given to Him as they live in this present evil age. We might call it the church age, the age of the new covenant. It is the age where the kingdom of God is present in an inaugurated form, but not consummated yet. It is the age where the evil one has been defeated, but yet he is still active. It is the age where God's people are called to live in the world, but to be not of it, you see. That is what Christ is praying for, that we would be kept. Brothers and sisters, we must contemplate these truths if we are to know what God has called us to be in this present age. He has called us to belong to Him, to be citizens of His kingdom, but to not flee the world either. We are to be salt and light. We are to be witnesses in this place. The kingdom of Christ will be brought to a consummation or complete completion when Christ returns. On that day, those not united to Him by faith will be judged and cast out. On that day... Those united to Him by faith will enter the new heavens and earth in body and soul. No unclean thing will enter that realm, but only those written in the Lamb's book of life. All will be God's kingdom, and God's kingdom will be completed and kept secure. All of God's enemies will be judged and banished, never to threaten again. But until then, the kingdom of Christ, which is not of this world but is of heaven and the world to come, is manifest in this world which is still in darkness, plagued by the effects of sin, and is under the power of the evil one. Where is the kingdom manifest? It is in the church. Just before I came up to preach, and as we were singing together, I looked out upon this humble little congregation here, and I thought, what a precious thing this is. This is, this is a manifestation of the eternal kingdom of God. This is an assembling together of those who have Jesus as king. This is an assembling together of people who, though they live in this world, they do not belong to this world. They are living for the kingdom to come. It is a precious thing. You must see the church as precious, brothers and sisters. If you understand what it is, what its nature is, you will come to value it like you have never valued it before. This is not just some fun thing that we do on Sunday morning that makes us feel better, you see. This is the assembling together of God's people in Jesus' name. This is the beginning of the eternal kingdom of God. Indeed, Satan's head has been bruised. He has been defeated. He has been bound so as to not deceive the nations any longer. Did you hear this? Satan has been bound 
so as to not deceive the nations any longer. You may see Matthew 28, 18 through 20, and Revelation 20 to hear teaching about that. He has been bound so that Christ might progressively plunder his house. See Matthew 12, 28 through 29. You can hear the intensity in my voice because I actually am growing more and more frustrated with these premillennialists who say that the millennium is in the future. That the binding of Satan is in the future. And what a sorry doctrine that is. We ought to abandon it and have nothing to do with it because it teaches that Christ's work was not completed as much as it actually was. When Christ came for the first time, He stomped the head of the serpent, dealt a decisive blow. When Christ came for the first time, He saw Satan fall from heaven like lightning. He bound the strong man in that moment so that the strong man's house can be plundered. And that is precisely what our Lord is doing now. He rules and reigns now. It is present, not future. He rules and reigns now and the strong man's house is being plundered. You see, this doctrine is so very important, brothers and sisters. Uh, Yes, we might disagree on eschatology and still say we are brothers and sisters in Christ, but there is an importance here The victory has been won. Christ has dealt the fatal blow to the head of the rebel king. Christ sits on his throne now. He rules and reigns now, but his kingdom is not yet consummated. He must um, reign now, though his kingdom suffers violence presently, uh, because the evil one has not been thoroughly judged and banished to the lake of fire. He must rule and reign Until his enemies are made his footstool, that is to say, totally and finally defeated and judged. That language there is so very important. He must rule until his enemies are made his footstool. I am here quoting Psalm 110 and Luke 20, 41 through 44, and Acts 235 and Hebrews 113. It's a very important text in the Old Testament and the New. Is the Messiah reigning now? Yes, He is reigning now. And He will reign until His enemies are brought under His feet totally. And finally, that is the condition of the new covenant age. There is the presence of God's kingdom, but it is not yet consummated. The evil one has been defeated. He has been bound so as to not deceive the nations any longer, so that his house might be plundered. And that is what is happening as the gospel of Jesus Christ goes to the ends of the earth until the Lord returns. So why have I presented you with this overview of the history of redemption in the terms of kingdom? The kingdom of God being offered to Adam in the garden but forfeited, promised to Adam and Abraham after the fall, prefigured in Israel under the old Mosaic covenant, inaugurated at Christ's first coming and consummated at Christ's second coming. Why have I presented this sweeping overview to you in the terms of kingdom when this is supposed to be a sermon on the church as temple, the final one in a series? Well, the kingdom language is more familiar, but everything that I have said to you regarding the kingdom of God may also be said regarding the temple of God. It is not only God's kingdom that was offered, promised, prefigured, inaugurated, and will be consummated, but God's cosmic and eternal temple too. God's eternal temple, that is to say, the new creation temple of God in which righteousness dwells, was inaugurated or begun at Christ's first coming. 
In Christ Jesus, you are a new creation. Remember, see 2 Corinthians 5.17 and Galatians 6.15. In other words, the new creation, the new heavens and earth, though it is future to us in its consummate form, it has broken in to human history and is present now. Just as I asked you, where is the kingdom of God now? Where is it manifest? And you said, in the church. So too, if I were to ask you, where is the new creation found? We await its consummation, but it has been inaugurated. Where is it? And we must say again, in the church. And that is what Paul means when he speaks to the church in Corinth and the church in Galatia, the churches in Galatia saying, you are a new creation. You have been made new in Christ Jesus. You've been renewed. And so here the new creation is present as a foretaste, if you will. And in Christ Jesus, you are God's temple because the Holy Spirit dwells in you. When will the temple be consummated? When, when Christ returns and everything is made new. You can go to Revelation, the, the last two chapters of the book of Revelation to see a beautiful image of that and that prophetic work. But you are the temple because the Holy Spirit dwells in you now. So the temple of God and the new creation are present realities now. The kingdom is here now. And if you are united to Christ by faith, you are citizens of that kingdom. If you are united to Christ by faith, you are citizens of that kingdom. You can see Mark 3.2, Matthew 28.18, Luke 19.12, John 18.36, 1 Peter 3.22, Hebrews 12.28, etc., etc., etc. Why do I rattle off all of these references? Because this teaching is pervasive in the New Testament. The New Testament is all about the arrival of God's kingdom, you see, the inauguration of it. If you are in Christ Jesus, you are citizens of of His kingdom. And similarly, God's temple is here now. And if you are a united Christ by faith, you are stones in that temple and members of the household of God. See 1 Peter 2.5 and following, and Ephesians 2.19 and following. All of this is in fulfillment to the promises of God made previously. And these promises are especially seen in the promises made to King David in these words, which we have already read, hear them again. The Lord speaking to David says, When your days are fulfilled, and when you lie down with your fathers, I will rise up your offspring after you, who shall come from your body, and I will establish his kingdom. And then, it is said, he shall build a house, or temple, for my name, and I will establish his throne forever. So these two things were promised to David that one of his descendants would establish an eternal kingdom and an eternal temple for the name of the Lord. This promise had immediate fulfillment in Solomon, the son of David. But what do we know about Solomon? Was he the promised one, do you think? Did he finish well? He did not. And I think he did not finish well in part to show us that he was not the Messiah. Though he descended from David's body, and though the kingdom of Israel flourished in his day and would never reach those heights again, in fact, and though he did build that grand and glorious temple of stone in Jerusalem where the people of God worshipped, he was not the one, and his kingdom was not the one, and this temple that he built, as grand and glorious as it was, was not the one but rather something greater was coming. A greater son would come, a greater kingdom would come, a greater temple would come, Jesus Christ the Lord. He is the true son of David, 
This promise has its ultimate fulfillment in Jesus Christ and in His eternal kingdom and temple. And you, brothers and sisters, are a part of the inauguration of that kingdom and temple. If we wish to understand the church, then we cannot overlook this teaching. For in this teaching, the true nature of the church is revealed. And this is why I have taken the time to consider the church as God's temple with you. We have considered the church in the terms of temple. And specifically, we have considered its foundation, its stones, its purpose, its character, its gifts and graces, and its fruit. And today, in the time that we have remaining, which is limited, we will consider its growth. We will consider its growth. When, it is, when all is said, I want you to see that the church is not of this world. It is brought into existence by the Father, through the Son, and by the Holy Spirit. It is heavenly, and it is spiritual. It is an intrusion or foretaste of the world to come. It is the visible manifestation of the inaugurated new creation kingdom or temple of the living God. It is God who must build His church, therefore. If the church is to be built, really and truly, it is God who must build His church. And He builds His church through Christ, the Word, and by His Spirit. Stated negatively, the church, Christ's true church, cannot be built by man, for the church is spiritual and heavenly. The kingdom of God cannot be furthered by man, by governments who threaten with the sword, for it is not of this world. And neither can it be built by the craftiness and schemes of man. Again I say, the church is spiritual. The church is heavenly. God alone can build His church. Yes, He does use us in the process, but only as servants. Only as workers in His field, you see. But ultimately, the church must be built by God through His Word, and by the working of His Spirit, according to the means that He has established. Here is my concern, dear brothers and sisters, and I'm sure that you could imagine what the concern is. You could probably hear it in my voice this morning. Men and women may try to build God's church using human wisdom and human strength, and indeed they might even appear to the natural eye to succeed for a time. But if Christ's church is to grow really and truly, it can only grow as God the Father works through the Word and by the Spirit, and according to the means that God has ordained. If we wish to be used by God in the building up of His church, therefore, we had better depend upon Him and employ the methods that He has revealed in His Word and not our own. To ignore God's Word and to seek to build God's church according to our own wisdom and methods will be an absolute waste of time. It may be that we will build something, and it may even be that we build something that is very grand and impressive according to the world's estimation, but it will most likely not be Christ's true church at all. It will not stand the test of time, and it certainly will not stand the test of the judgment day. This is what Paul warns against in 1 Corinthians 3, 11-17. He speaks of the building up of Christ's temple church. That is the context, by the way. It is the church 
told in the term, described in the terms of temple here in this passage. Uh, but Paul says this, For no one can lay a foundation other than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. So whatever you're doing, you have a desire to, to build up God's kingdom on earth, you have a desire to, to build up the church somehow, know this for certain, there's no other foundation that can be laid except Jesus Christ. And then Paul goes on saying, Now if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, precious stones, wood, hay, straw, notice these are all earthly materials. Some of them were used in the construction of the temple of old. Paul says, Each one's work will become manifest for the day, that is a reference here to the day of judgment, the day will disclose it because it will be revealed by fire. And the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. If anyone's work is burned up, he will suffer loss, though he himself will be saved, but only as through fire. It is after this that Paul says, Do you not know that you are God's temple and that God's Spirit dwells in you? If anyone destroys God's temple, God will destroy him, for God's temple is holy and you are that temple. Finally, he warns in this same passage, Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. What is Paul's point? Those of you who wish to be used of the Lord for the building up of the kingdom of God, for the building up of the temple of God, for the building up of the church of God, you had better be careful how you build. You had better be sure that Jesus Christ is the foundation of this thing. There is no other foundation that will work. And you had better be careful how you build upon this foundation. If someone else laid a good foundation, you workers who come later, you ministers of the Word of God, you pastors, let's say, you'd better be careful how you build upon this foundation because you're going to have to stand before the Lord someday. The judgment day is going to reveal whether or not you did good work, you see. Because everything that you do will be tested with fire. And if you decided to build according to human wisdom, with worldly methods, with worldly materials, none of that will pass through the fires of judgment. You yourself might make it through, but all of your work will be shown to be futile, nothing. It's actually quite sad to think about who will be burned up. Well, all of those false converts, perhaps, will be burned up on Judgment Day and shown to not be true. I do wonder how many pastors will stand before the Lord on Judgment Day thinking that they build something grand and glorious and they will have nothing to show for it. Because it was all built according to the human wisdom that they possess. They thought they were wise. They would have been wise to become fools, though. Because the wisdom of God is not the same as the wisdom of this world. This warning about being wise according to the wisdom of this age is delivered in the context of talk concerning the building up of God's temple church on the foundation of Christ. It is a warning to build, not with earthly material, and not according to the wisdom of this age, but according to the wisdom of God. Paul says, become a fool so that you may become wise. I think the modern church, brothers and sisters, and especially leaders in the modern church, need to heed this warning. Many, I am afraid, are attempting to build Christ's church according to the wisdom of this world. They seem to be prosperous on the surface. But the question is, will their works stand on Judgment Day? Will what they have built pass through the fires of judgment unscathed? Or will they suffer loss, even if they themselves are saved? It is a sober warning to all Christians, and I think especially to ministers of the gospel. 
Uh, brothers and sisters, I've thought a lot about this. I've taken a particular course in my ministry. You, you understand this. So too have the elders of Emmaus. We've set out on a particular course knowing that this course we have taken looks like foolishness to the world. Do you understand that? The world looks it upon us, and even other professing Christians look upon us and they go, what are they doing there? What a foolish thing. What a, what a sorry thing this is. Look at how small they are. Look at how poor they are, etc., <laughs> etc. Et and yet, we have taken this course because we believe it is what God has called us to do. We believe that we are, if we are to build anything that is true and lasting, we must do it according to God's word according to God's command. Our job is to be faithful servants of Christ, not to be innovative, you see, uh, not to be wise according to the standards of this world. And we have taken this course, and I think one of my concerns is that you be fully with us in this endeavor as members of this church. I don't doubt that you are, in fact, but from time to time this needs to be said. We need to be in this together we need to see that being faithful to the Word of God, faithful to do what God's Word has called us to do as the church, is, is the most important thing. Yes, we can create growth using worldly methods, but it won't bring us joy in the end, brothers and sisters. It might bring us joy for a moment, you know, a sense of excitement. Look at what seems to be going on in our midst. Look at what the Lord is doing. Look at the numbers. Look at the numbers. Look at the budget. It's so healthy, you see. Look at how many people are flocking to this place. It will bring us joy for the moment, but will it not bring us joy in the end? What will bring us joy in the end? Well, to see uh, those who come to faith in Christ, to see those who grow in Christ in this place, worship God in the new heavens and new earth for all eternity. And to hear those words, well done, good and faithful servant. How then are we to build Christ's church? How are we to seek its growth, both numerical growth and growth in maturity? Answer, not according to the wisdom of this world, but through the faithful ministry of the Word and administration of the sacraments in prayerful reliance upon the Holy Spirit. Those will be the three points of the sermon today. We are to build the church. We are to seek its growth, not according to the wisdom of this world, but through the faithful ministry of the Word and administration of the sacraments, and in prayerful reliance upon the Holy Spirit. First, if the church is to grow, the Word of God must be proclaimed, taught, and obeyed. As you know, sinners like you and me come to faith in Christ through the preaching of the gospel as the Spirit works. This is why Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes to the Jew first and also to the Greek. For in it the righteousness of God is revealed from faith for faith, as it is written, the righteous shall live by faith. Paul says, I'm not ashamed of the gospel. It seems like a foolish message to the world, but I proclaim it and there is no shame because I know it is the power of God. In other words, uh, this is the thing that God uses to bring sinners uh, into His kingdom. It is the preaching of the Word of God. As the Spirit works. This is why Paul said, For I am not ashamed of the gospel. For, um, excuse me, in another place he says, If you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord and believe in your heart that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. For with the heart one believes and is justified, and with the mouth one confesses and is saved. And then a little later in that same passage he says this, How then will they call on him in whom they have not believed? 
And how are they to believe in him of whom they have never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? And how are they to preach unless they are sent? As it is written, how beautiful are the feet of those who preach the good news. But they have not all obeyed the gospel, for Isaiah says, Lord, who has believed what, has, what he has heard from us? So faith comes from hearing and hearing through the word of Christ. Why do I cite that text, Romans 10, 9-17 to you? To make this point that this is the means which God has established in order to bring his elect to salvation into the kingdom of God and into the temple of God. It is the preaching of the gospel. There's a chain here in Romans uh, chapter 10, verses 9 through 17. I've heard some call this the golden chain of uh, evangelism or missions. You know, it, it's not the, um, uh, the golden chain of, of redemption, uh, which is found elsewhere in the book of Romans, but, but it is the golden chain of evangel- evangelism or missions. It says this is how people come to faith. It's through the preaching of the gospel. And if the gospel is to be preached, these folks must be sent out, you see. They must be sent out by the church so that the gospel might be heard and so that through the working of the Holy Spirit, sinners might be drawn to faith in Jesus Christ and brought into the church. When when Christ commanded His first disciples to go and make disciples of all nations, Matthew 28, 18, this is what they did. What did these disciples do? Having been commissioned to go and make disciples of all nations, They went out and they preached. They preached a message of good news. They announced that the promised Messiah had come. They urged sinners to turn from their sins and to trust in Him. You can read the book of Acts for yourself and see that this is so. Christ said, go and make disciples of all nations. And and what did they do? They went out and they began to proclaim the gospel of Jesus Christ. The gospel message was proclaimed and as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. Acts 13.48 says. And this is how disciples are made. This is how citizens are added to Christ's kingdom. This is how stones are added to God's eternal temple through the proclamation of the gospel. Notice that Jesus prayed for this process in His high priestly prayer as recorded in John 17. He did not only pray for the ones whom the Father had given to Him who were alive on earth at that moment, But he also prayed for those who would believe in him through their word. That is to say, through their faithful evangelistic ministry. Oftentimes this verse is um, emphasized in this way. Think of it, Jesus was even praying for us in this moment. Here we hear the prayer of Jesus for us. He did not pray only for his disciples who were alive on earth in that moment, but for those who would believe through their word. It is a marvelous thing to consider. Uh, We live nearly 2,000 years later in a very far off place, uh, a long ways away from from Jerusalem. Indeed, this gospel message has gone forth from Jerusalem out to Judea and Samaria and to the ends of the earth. We are the ends of the earth. We believe in Christ today through the faithful evangelistic ministry of the original Apostles and disciples of Jesus Christ. But here is the thing that I wish to emphasize right now uh, that here in the high priestly prayer of Christ, he indicates how others are going to be brought into the kingdom. It is going to be through the witness or the word uh, proclaimed by his disciples. Uh, brothers and sisters, please hear me. We must labor to expand Christ's kingdom and to grow. God's temple church. We must labor in this. 
I hope you come to Sunday school, uh, not this next week, but the week after, as we go through this study on the doctrine of the church, that marks of a healthy church. It's all of this, but from different perspectives, you see. But one of the marks that we will consider is the mark of evangelism, or we might say missions. A healthy church is concerned to evangelize. A healthy church is concerned to do missions and to see the church grow. I do not think we can call ourselves a healthy church, really, without evangelistic zeal and activity. I think it's, in fact, something we need to grow in, brothers and sisters. Uh, We love this church. I know that you do. And one danger is this. We can so love one another and so enjoy what we have that we grow kind of unconcerned with those outside of it. And in fact, we really don't want to see what we have disrupted, you know, by others coming in. I'm not saying that anyone here has that attitude, but we must be aware of it. We need to have a zeal uh, to see Christ's church grow in this place and even to the ends of the earth. And we need also to labor for this. Why? The Scriptures command it. We must labor for the Scriptures command it. Christ commissioned His disciples saying this, Go and make disciples. Go and make disciples. This did not mean that they were to go and make disciples in their own strength, that they were to make disciples according to their own wisdom, or according to their innovation, but by being faithful ministers of the Word of God, faithful to preach and to proclaim Christ, faithful to give a reason for the hope that is in them, they were to go and make disciples. This commission was not only given to the original apostles of Christ, or to these original disciples of Christ, this commission was given to the church through them. And so we are all to have this concern to see disciples made. And we know that disciples are made not by the threat of the sword. Think about that for a moment. There was a period of time in the history of the church where in fact this was one of the methods employed. Disciples of Jesus Christ were made through the threat of the sword. That is to say, through armies But true disciples are not made in this way. There might be external allegiance to Christ, but not internal to the saving of the soul. Uh, The church is not grown. Disciples are not made through political activity. They are not made through moral teaching. They are certainly not made by attempting to attract sinners into the church in worldly ways. How are disciples made? by proclaiming the message of salvation through faith in Jesus the Messiah and urging others to repent and believe. This is how true disciples are made. A message must be proclaimed. And it is the message of Jesus Christ and salvation through faith in Him. Now I ask, how do those who believe in Christ then grow in Christ? Those who believe grow in maturity through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God and by the working of the Holy Spirit. Perhaps you're beginning to see that our salvation in Christ Jesus and our sanctification in Him are the work of the triune God. God the Father saves and sanctifies by the Word and through the Spirit. When Christ prayed for those given to Him by the Father, He said, Sanctify them in the truth. Your Word is truth. Before that, He said, I do not ask that you take them out of the world, but that you keep them from the evil one. So then I ask, how are God's people kept from the evil one? How are they sanctified? How are they set apart from the world and made more holy progressively over time? They are sanctified by the truth 
And it is God's Word that is truth. I could pile up a lot of scriptures to demonstrate that the church grows in maturity through the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. We know that the first disciples devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching and the fellowship, to the breaking of bread and the prayers. In Acts, we see that Paul and other missionaries would spend long periods of time in a given region, preaching and teaching the Scriptures, to see to it that the church that was born there was well established. And this just came to my mind. Brothers and sisters, though I do not think it is wrong for us to have a morning worship service each Lord's Day that begins at 10 o'clock, we even ring a bell to mark its beginning, and usually concludes somewhere around 11.30, maybe a little bit later. I don't think there is anything wrong with that. It's wise to have a time to meet and limits to our meeting times, especially in our culture where that sort of thing is expected. Uh, did you remember, do you remember how in the book of Acts, Paul would show up in a place and he would just teach? And sometimes he would teach late into the night. The people there in that place who had believed in Christ through the preaching of the gospel were also hungry for the Word of God. They would gather together and they would, they would long to hear God's Word taught to them so that they might be sanctified, so that they might be renewed in the mind and thus transformed by the renewal of their minds. Brothers and sisters, you ought to hunger for the teaching of God's Word. You ought to long to have as much of it as you can get. And yet so many who profess faith in Christ today neglect church attendance altogether. Uh, some will go missing for weeks on end and will not hear the ministry of the Word of God. When they come, they come and perhaps do not pay attention. They leave quickly. They forget what they have heard. This is not the way that a Christian is to act. We are born by the Word of God as the Spirit works within us. And we also grow. It is the milk that we need. And later it is the meat that we need. And so don't rush off, brothers and sisters. But stay and feast on the Lord's Day on God's Word. Take as much of it as you can get. I think some of you are wondering, why am I struggling so severely in the Christian life? I don't know. Maybe you're neglecting the Word of God. Maybe you're failing to take it in and to believe it and to have it take root within the heart and produce maturity within you. Do not neglect the Word of God. In the New Testament, pastors are commanded in the Scriptures to preach the Word, to be ready in season and out of season, to reprove, to rebuke and exhort with complete patience and teaching. Look, that's what I'm doing now. I'm reproving you. I'm rebuking you. I'm exhorting you. I'm saying, brothers and sisters, let us... Let us crave God's Word. Let us seek to get as much of it as we can, knowing that it is by God's Word that we are sanctified, that we are transformed by the renewal of our minds. Our minds need to be renewed. We need to grow in wisdom, brothers and sisters. And Paul urged the Colossians to let the Word of Christ dwell in them richly, teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom, singing psalms and hymns and spiritual songs with thankfulness in their hearts to God. Let the word of Christ dwell in you richly, he says to the, to the Colossians. May, may the word of Christ just permeate everything that you do so that you might grow up in wisdom within the church. I don't need to go on to prove the point that maturity comes through the preaching and teaching of the word of God as the Spirit works. I think it is clear uh, to all of you that that is the case. 
Uh, we overcome conformity to this world and are transformed into the likeness of Christ by the renewal of our minds, Romans 12.2. And this is why Christ said, Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you. There needs to be teaching. And I think that is greatly lacking in the modern church today. There needs to be teaching. Pastors must teach the Scriptures faithfully. But also, the members of our churches need to crave teaching. They need to be hungry for it. They need to be attentive to it when it is delivered. Those who are made to be disciples through preaching, the preaching of the gospel, are then taught to be faithful um, Christians uh, through teaching so that they might observe all that Christ has commanded. Brothers and sisters, Again, I say to you, do not disregard the preaching and teaching of the Word of God. This is true of old and young also. You're to prepare your hearts and minds to receive it. You're to settle down and, and, and focus when it is delivered. You're to long for as much of it as you can get. And then be doers of the Word and not hearers only, deceiving yourselves, James 1.22. The second point of the sermon today is that if the church is to grow, if the church is to grow, the sacraments must be faithfully administered. A sacrament is a symbol. They are signs or visible words. The gospel is preached primarily with words. But in the sacraments, the gospel is preached in a visible and tangible way. Under the new covenant, there are two sacraments given to the church, baptism and the Lord's Supper. And it is the Word of God that establishes their meaning and their proper administration. Both sacraments are mentioned in the Great Commission passage that I've been referring to throughout this sermon. One explicitly and the other implicitly. When Christ gave the church her mission, He said, All authority in heaven and on earth has been given to Me. In other words, He rules and reigns now. That rule and reign is not off in the future. And for this reason we could be confident to obey Him in the furtherance of His kingdom. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go therefore and make disciples. How does that happen? Through the preaching of the gospel. And then we read this, baptizing. It is these, it is those who have been made disciples, which means learners or followers of Jesus, who are to be baptized, that is to say, immersed in water, in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In water baptism... The name of God is placed on the one baptized. Water baptism symbolizes cleansing in Christ and union with Him in His death and resurrection. Baptism is for those who believe. It is for disciples or followers of Christ. It is not for the world. It is not for the infants or children of believers who do not yet have understanding. It is for disciples only. This can be demonstrated from many passages in the New Testament and Old, but it is clear enough in the Great Commission. Go therefore and make disciples of all nations, baptizing them. Who's them? The them is the disciples, those who have believed. And they are to be baptized in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit. In other words, the name of God is to be set upon those who believe in Christ through the waters of baptism. And finally, we find these words, teaching them to observe all that I have commanded you, and behold, I am with you always to the end of the age. One of the things that Christ commanded His disciples to observe 
is the Lord's Supper. And so this second sacrament of the church is in fact included in the Great Commission in the words that I have just read. You're to baptize those who believe, and you're to teach them to observe all that I have commanded you. And one of the things that Christ commanded us to observe as His people is the Lord's Supper. We're to do this in remembrance of Him. Matthew 26, 26 says, Now as they were eating, Jesus took bread, and after blessing it, He broke it and gave it to the disciples and said, Take, eat, this is my body. And He took a cup, and when He had given thanks, He gave it to them, saying, Drink of it, all of you. For this is my blood of the covenant, which is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, I will not drink again of this fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. So the Lord's Supper is to be observed as the second sacrament of the church until we enjoy communion with Christ in His Father's consummate kingdom. Or to use the language of the Great Commission, the Lord's Supper is to be observed by Christ's disciples as a visible reminder to the fact that He is with us to the end of the age, you see. If the church is to grow, the sacraments must be faithfully administered. Baptism must be applied to those who make a credible profession of faith. It is not to be given to those who make a questionable, uninformed, and flippant profession. It is not to be applied to the children of believers, for they are born in Adam and not in Christ. They are born under the broken covenant of works and not the covenant of grace, of which baptism is a sign. Under the new covenant, physical descent counts for nothing. It is the new birth that matters, and that by the grace of God. It is faith-producing. And the Lord's Supper is only for those who believe and have been baptized. Covenantally speaking, baptism is the wedding ceremony that marks union with Christ, and the Lord's Supper is the anniversary celebration. We celebrated... We celebrated... Um, we, we celebrate the anniversary of our union with the crucified and risen Lord, not yearly... But how often? Every Lord's Day as we assemble, assemble together in His name. This is the day on which Christ was raised from the dead. But when we partake of the Lord's Supper, we remember His broken body and His shed blood. On this Lord's Day, it is the Christian Sabbath. We remember the consummation of all things and the eternal Sabbath rest that will be ours in the new heavens and new, new earth. We remember that it's not here yet, that this is the Sabbath day. The first day of the week, the day upon which Christ rose from the dead. And one of the things we do is we partake of the bread and the cup. We remember His death. We remember His burial. We remember His victorious resurrection. And the Lord's Supper is a sign. It, it is a, it, it, when, when those who have faith in Christ and who have been baptized upon profession faith partake of it, they are, they are claiming to be God's people still. As I said, baptism marks union with Christ and entrance into the covenant community, the Lord's Supper signifies abiding in Christ and continuance in this covenant community. Those who are tempted to grow the church according to human wisdom will certainly say that we must open wide the front door of the church. In other words, baptism and the Lord's Supper ought to be applied and administered liberally. In some situations, they're simply neglected because they are off-putting. To the world, you see. Baptism and the Lord's Supper distinguish, do they not? Baptism and the Lord's Supper distinguish between the church and the world. And if you want to grow your church, here's one way to do it. 
neglect baptism and the Lord's Supper altogether, for these things distinguish. And we don't want to make any distinctions that would offend anyone. We want to be welcoming. We should be welcoming, brothers and sisters. But not at all costs. We must be faithful. So, in some contexts, baptism and the Lord's Supper are applied very liberally, loosely. In some, they are um, neglected altogether. But those who wish to grow the church carefully and according to the wisdom of God will administer the sacraments carefully and faithfully. In fact, a true church will even excommunicate the one who shows by their false doctrine or sinful way of life that their profession of faith was not true. This is what Paul means when he says, But now I am writing to you not to associate with anyone who bears the name of brother if he is guilty of sexual immorality or greed or as an idolater, reveler, drunkard, or swindler, not even to eat with such a one. For what have I to do with judging outsiders? Is it not those inside the church whom you are to judge? God judges those outside. And then Paul says this, Purge the evil person from among you. The modern church doesn't like texts like that, does it? That's so off-putting. You know, it's so exclusive. We're not to judge anyone, <laughs> most modern Christians will say. Well, in fact, the scriptures say otherwise. We are to judge. Always in love. Always according to the truth. But you see, the church is to be distinct from the world. The church is not to have its front doors open wide, so wide as to invite the world in. The world may certainly come in to hear the preaching of the Word of God. There needs to be a place for that. But the world is not to be invited to the waters of baptism. The world is not to be invited to the Lord's table. For it is only those who have been washed by the blood of Christ who may have communion with the living God. Brothers and sisters, this must be clear in our minds and hearts, you see. It must be clear in our minds and hearts if we were to go on seeking the growth of Christ's church according to the truth of God's Word. Those who have been brought into, those who have bought into worldly church growth models will say, this here is not good for church growth. But those who wish to see Christ's church grow really and truly will simply obey God's Word. They will administer the sacraments faithfully. Again, I read this text from 1 Corinthians 3.18. Let no one deceive himself. If anyone among you thinks that he is wise in this age, let him become a fool, that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is folly with God. I have one more point to make briefly. Thirdly and lastly, very briefly, if the church is to grow... The people of God must prayerfully rely on the Holy Spirit. Only the Father can build His church through the Son and by the Spirit. And this, is according to His, and this must be done according to His decreed will. We cannot make it happen, brothers and sisters. We cannot cause others to repent and believe. Only God can do that. But we must be faithful to do what He has called us to do. We must be faithful to preach the gospel. For this is the means that God has determined to use to bring His elect to repentance and faith. We must be faithful to, in our hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks us a reason for the hope that is in us, yet with gentleness and respect. 1 Peter 3.15 And we must be faithful to pray. We must be faithful to pray. 
First of all, Paul says, I urge that supplications, prayers, intercessions, and thanksgivings be made for all people, for kings and all who are in high positions, that we may lead a peaceful and quiet life, godly and dignified in every way. This is good, and it is pleasing in the sight of God our Savior, who desires all people to be saved and to come to the knowledge of the truth. For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus, who gave himself as a ransom for all, which is the testimony given at the proper time. I know that this text that I've just read is often misused by those who wish to teach a universal atonement. Oh, see, it says that God desires all people to be saved. Therefore, Christ has died for all. No, the Scriptures teach elsewhere that Christ has laid His life down for the church. He has shed His blood not for all, but for many, you see. Uh, That is clearly taught elsewhere. What is being taught here is that prayers are to be offered up for all. That is to say, all kinds of people, even kings and those who are in high positions, God desires all kinds of people to be saved is the meaning. And that meaning is made clear with what is said at the end of this text, that there is only one God and there is only one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. You see, there's different types of people. There are different ethnicities of people. There are different types of people in the world with different levels of power, you see. All of them, if they are to be saved, must be saved through the one mediator, Jesus Christ, whom God has given. Prayer along with the proclamation of the gospel, is a means by which God has determined to work. By prayer we show ourselves to be dependent upon God. Salvation is of the Lord. If we are to see the church grow in number, purity, and maturity, then we must preach and teach the Word of God, and we must prayerfully rely on the Holy Spirit's work. Brothers and sisters, we must desire to see and labor for the growth of the church. The whole story of redemption in Christ Jesus is an extor- a story of expansion and growth. From the first promise of the gospel in Genesis 3.15 to the consummation as symbolized in Revelation 21 and 22, the story of the eternal kingdom of God and the eternal temple of God is a story of expansion and growth. If we are not concerned to see God's temple church grow, and if we are not laboring for it, then we are out of sync with God's purposes. We are even found to be disobedient to the mission that Christ gave to us. But please hear me. This cannot be growth at all costs or by any means. We must pursue growth in the way that Christ has commanded. Our task is not to be innovative or creative, but faithful. We must not attempt to appeal to the sinful desires and darkened thinking of fallen men and women. Instead, we must preach the word and obey the word knowing that those whom God is calling to Himself will love the Word. Have you ever thought of that? It's so tempting to try to soften the message a bit, you know, so as to not offend. It's so tempting to alter the message. Well, we don't teach this doctrine or that, because that will be off-putting to the non-believers, you see. Uh, They won't understand it. Well, the truth is this. Those who belong to Christ, who are called by the Holy Spirit, they hear Christ's voice and they love it. You see, And so we're to simply put the Word of God out there. The Gospel is to be put out there. And those who are of the Lord and are called of the Lord, they will love God's voice and they will come running to Him as their Heavenly Father through faith in Jesus Christ. We must preach the Word, we must obey the Word, we must teach the Word. And we must receive only those who make a credible profession of faith into the membership of this church. For it is those who have faith in Christ who are stones in His temple and members of His body. 
It is the disciples who are to be baptized. And it is those who are baptized who are to be given the supper. Indeed, the church would appear to grow in size much more quickly if we were to open wide the doors to baptism in the table. But the growth would be in appearance only. Or to know this for certain, the fire of the judgment day will test each man's work to show if it is true. So, brothers and sisters, in this very long sermon, in conclusion to this rather short series, my message is this. May we be found faithful on the last day, faithful to proclaim Christ crucified and risen, and faithful in prayer as well. May the Lord bless us to see a great expansion of His temple church in our day. Let's bow for prayer. Father in heaven, we do pray that you would bless us to see a great expansion of your church in our day. Uh, We long to see uh, many added to your church, really and truly. And so God, we pray that you would have mercy upon this land, that you would move us to faithfulness. Move us to maturity, O Lord, individually. Move us to maturity as a church, but give us a true heart for the world. May we look out upon the world and see that the harvest is ripe, and may we long to be used by you as workers in your field, O God. So move us along, O God. Make us even healthier as a church, that we would be faithful to proclaim the gospel and to trust upon the working of the Holy Spirit. Above all else, we pray that it is your name that is glorified. In the name of Christ, we pray these things. Amen.